everybody. Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. How are you doing this week, Gordon? I'm just doing fine, thanks. That's excellent. So gang, this is episode number 127. And this time we're going to talk about the filters that every photographer needs, as well as a number that you don't need. Now, I know it's not so long ago that we talked about the frank truth about screw-on lens filters. And we're trying to address some specific concerns in that episode. It was maybe a bit negative. This time, we're going to be a little bit more positive. Or Gordon's going to try to keep me in line. It's going to be one of the two. <laughs> Sound fair, buddy? Yeah, let's go to crack. Okay. <laughs> so the first place I want to talk about is the glass or the material that goes into a filter. Because there's, well, if I were to say that there's some misleading information on the internet, I'm not sure that you might believe me. Gord, would you believe that? Um, I, I would believe that, but I would certainly expect it. Mm, fair enough. So, Gordon, when you think of a filter, what kind of materials do you think of? Um, well, I think in terms of what I have. That's fair. Because uh, that's the limit of my massive experience. And I was uh, suggested when I first bought my filters that um, the Koken filters were good or acceptable. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is they're a polycarbonate sort of material. Yes, they are. Uh, subsequently, I found that uh, glass... Uh, which is what I have in my uh, polarizer, is probably better. Uh, So those are the two components that I know of. And I think that's fair. The The third material type that we'll find in filters is increasingly rare, and that's actually gelatin, a gel filter. Okay. But most of the filters that we're going to buy for photographic purposes, as opposed to color correction for lighting mm-hmm. are going to be glass or some type of polymer. Okay. And whether glass or the polymer is better has less to do whether it's glass or, or plastic as opposed to the quality of the glass or the polymer itself. And as one might expect, the quality range is pretty wide. Mm-hmm. And... This is one of those situations where you, in fact, do get what you pay for. Yep. So if we think about glass filters, what we're seeking is a filter made from optical-grade glass. And optical-grade glass is not the same as window glass or car glass Mm -hmm. or Joe's glass. It's going to have two sides that are exactly parallel. Otherwise, we're going to get internal reflections and refractions that are going to be problematic. We're going to get them anyway. But by keeping the two sides parallel, we have a better opportunity. There are also not going to be occlusions or junk or floaters in the glass. And if we were choosing glass, that might make us inclined to be willing to spend a little bit more money 
on our glass filters. The same things are going to be true about a quality polycarbonate filter. Perfectly parallel edges, no occlusions, no stuff floating around, no stuff floating around and no things that are going to prompt more internal reflections because that's going to create haze. It's going to take away contrast. And we don't want to do that because, well, Gordon, what's the lens that you use probably most often on your camera? Um, it's a 72 millimeter diameter. Okay, no, and, what's, what's the, the lens itself? Usually it's a 12 to 100, which in real terms would be 24 to 200. Right, okay, you're, but you're a micro four-thirds. Usually that just means the lens is a little lighter, maybe a bit smaller, but it's not, there's nothing wrong with the glass. It's not a lower quality. No, certainly not. And you're buying uh, Olympus lenses, which are very, very high quality and very well respected. Is that an inexpensive lens? Oh, no. Oh, no. What would it cost to buy, roughly? Um, I think this lens cost me a thousand-ish. Okay. There. Not, not an insignificant investment. No, maybe in relation to some of the other lenses, yes, but the quality is certainly better than average, I would think. Okay. So... You spent, I'm going to call it a fair bit of money, to get a lens that you like and that you use. Mm -hmm. So would you then put a cheap filter in front of that? Uh, no. Why not? Well, in which case, I may as well have bought a cheap lens and saved me a whole bunch of money. Right. And, and this is one of the things that we, on, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we need to acknowledge that if you spend $1,000 on a lens and you spend... 40 bucks on a filter from a company you've never heard of, you're degrading the quality of that lens that you just bought. And we see it all the time in camera stores. Well, well, you need a protective filter for that lens. And whether you buy one or not, that's a different conversation. But if you are going to put a filter on your lens, you want to make sure it's optical glass because otherwise you're degrading the quality of that image. And I'll tell you straight up front, gang, that filter that sells retail for 50 bucks or 60 bucks costs the seller very little. It's a high margin product. That's why they push them so hard. And that is going to negatively impact your image. And don't believe me, that's okay. Go take some still life with and without the filter. And then as much as... Both Gordon and I do not encourage pixel peeping. Pixel peep. Because <laughs> you're going to see a difference. Guaranteed. So, we choose optical glass or an optical grade polycarbonate. And that's okay. Now, Gord, if you look across the front of that lens you use, do you ever see any kind of colored reflections or anything like that? No. Okay, so you've never looked across the front of the element and seen kind of like a purplish or a greenish kind of reflectance? No, I have not. Okay. So I've got a camera right over here, and I checked it earlier. And it's got a 50 millimeter 1.2 lens on it, a very expensive lens. And if I look across that, and the light's in the right place, I will see some colors. Okay. And those colors come from what's called multi-coating. 
Okay. And and I'm sure your lenses say that they're multi-coated on them yes, somewhere. Yes, Right. So the purpose of multi-coating is to deal with different indices of reflection and refraction for different color wavelengths of light. Okay. So if I spent a lot of money on a lens, like your Olympus or like that Canon 50mm 1.2, and they're both, both manufacturers have done a lot of work to multi-coat them, and I put a plain glass filter in front of it, Am I negating some of the value of that multi-coating? I, w- I would guess you are, yes. I am. Now, a lot of folks think that I, they need to put this filter on in front to protect the multi-coating. Mm-hmm. And that used to be true. But today, we have nano-grade multi-coating that's actually tougher than any of any the front of any normal glass element is going to be. And that's why you will see professional photographers working with $10,000 lenses with no filters on the front of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I've got that big 500 F4 that you've seen me struggle <laughs> to carry. Yes. <laughs> there is no filter that's ever going to fit on the front of that. It's not possible. So what am I losing? I'm not sure that I'm losing anything by not having a filter on the front. Right. And you shoot with the, you, I know you always have a uh, lens hood on. So Always. So that's the always. other part here of the argument. Yes, and, and I think those who've read my work or listened to me know that I think that the lens hood is the most underappreciated and underrated tool that photographers have. And you should always use one. So while that's off topic of filters... You should always have and use a lens hood. There is no excuse not to. And if you're too lazy to put it on, use your phone. (laughs) Give up and move on. Okay. Okay. So if I'm going to put a filter on a lens and you and I enjoy shooting rodeo, Mm -hmm. that's a camera hostile event. Mm, yes because we try to get close and sometimes through the fence and the horses and the bulls and all the other critters are kicking up dust and dirt yep i may not want that striking the front element of my lens even if the lens could hold up Mm -hmm. so i might put a protective filter on the front but if i'm going to do that and i do i want to make sure it's multi-coated right because a filter that's not multi-coated is defeating a lot of the value of my multi-coated lens. Right. And guess what? I'm not going to get a multi-coated optical glass filter for $50. It's going to cost over 100 bucks. And if it's a big filter, you mentioned yours is a 72, you said? Yes. So on my 70 to 200, which I, as you know, I use a lot for rodeo or the 100 to 400. That's a 77 millimeter filter. Yeah. This isn't like a $12 piece of, piece of junk. Right. I, I'm not getting that. I'm not getting a good optical filter, you know, from a warehouse shop. Sure. Right. So if I'm going to choose to use a filter of any kind, doesn't matter what kind of filter it is. I want to make sure that it's multi-coated. Make sense? Yes. Okay. So let's think now about the filters that we would commonly use. 
And let's start with protective or UV filters. Okay. Do you ever use a protective filter? I have protective filters on. Yeah. Are they UV? Um, mostly, I think not. And that's fair. Back in the days of film, we were very, very concerned about UV wavelengths. Right. With digital, we don't have to be as concerned because the sensor can filter out certain wavelengths right. electronically. Mm -hmm. Does that mean if I use a UV filter, it's going to damage my photos with a digital camera? Not no. at all. So whether you choose a protective filter or a UV filter isn't going to make any difference to you. But if you really are absolutely adamant, I want nothing to change what comes through the lens, then just clear is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I can guarantee you that if you're using a, a high-quality multi-coated UV, you're never going to see a negative impact of it. Yes. But you may have to pay more for it because it's got those two extra letters and they cost a lot of money. Right. You know, stenciling UV on that filter rim. I don't know. <laughs> that could double the price. Now, you don't may not always use a protective type of filter, but if you choose to, just make sure it's high quality. Is there a filter that you use probably most often? You mean other than the protective? Uh, other than I've something that's protective. Uh, yes, I think probably a polarizer would be pretty much the most common one I would use. And I think that that's a very fair thing, guys, because while we can do a lot in post-processing in the digital world, one of the things we cannot do, post-processing software advertising notwithstanding, none of them can filter out polarized light. That has to happen at the time you capture the image mm -hmm. because it is specifically related to the angle of the light source right. to the subject, and that light source has to be a point source. Yep. So sun on a clear day. That's when the polarizer works best. Right. And what is the pol what do you find use for the polarizer? How do you use it? Um, I predominantly use it for cutting reflections mm -hmm. and boosting color. Okay. So those are two key First day with my new tongue. Those are two key deliverables of the polarizer. Remove reflections from reflective surfaces other than unpainted metal. Yes. Nothing can deal with those. But like a car, painted mm -hmm. finish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You can use a polarizer to knock down some of those reflections, bring you back some of your detail. And you also mentioned improved color. Yes. Now, when you say that, how do you mean? Um, I, I don't know the whys, but I know that Come fall, if I put a filter, I will frequently put a UV filter on, not take it off until the snow flies. Because images taken uh, under those conditions, provided there there is a sun and yeah. Sorry, there you, is you, a direction. You, you said UV, you mean polarizer. I, I meant polarizer. Yeah, okay. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Sure. Um, I, I don't. I don't take it off till the, the snow flies. And provided the conditions are right, 
Uh, maybe it's a contamination of colors that gets filtered out. Maybe it's more pure. I don't know. I don't know the mechanics behind it, but I know the colors pop. So you're seeing better saturation? I think so. Better separation? I, I, I believe so, yes. And you'd be correct. The physics, laws of physics always apply. Because as we get into the fall time, there is more moisture in the air. Mm-hmm. We've also got more outgassing that's happening because of rot. Right. And that can create a moisture film. The polarizer cuts that reflection. Okay. And your colors pop more. So if you're a fall foliage photographer and you're shooting without a polarizer, that's a test, isn't it? (laughs) Fall foliage (laughs) photographer. Don't ask me to do it again. (laughs) That's going to improve the quality and the pop of your colors for sure. Now, if there's moisture there, maybe there's also more moisture in the air. Mm -hmm. And what does moisture in the air make? Um, Diffractions. Yes, polarized light so not only can you make your subject colors pop you can get that really rich blue Mm -hmm. without going into your editor grabbing the blue channel and dragging the saturation slider into thermonuclear war it looks real it doesn't look fake have you ever seen a edited photo where you know this guy is complete bs Oh, yeah, all, all the time. All the time. You can you can see it. But the nice thing about the, the polarizer, uh, again, in my experience, is you can control the amount of the effect that you're, you're getting. Absolutely. And how do you do that? Um, well, ch- changing um, by rotating the front element of the polarizer. That's exactly it. It's altering the, well, it's altering the degree of polarization, I guess. It's altering the degree of filtration. Exactly correct. So you as the creative, you have control over how much filtration is happening. Yes. And as you change your angle to the subject relative to the angle of the source, by being able to rotate that ring, you can manage the polarization filtration as you change angle yes and so if you're doing something like a panorama yes you know maybe the way i shoot them which is not horizontal but vertically right and then i'm going to tick 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 i don't want the sky to change color completely right but with the polarizer i have the ability if i just take the time just do a little rotation as the camera's moving relative to the source i might be able to keep that polarization filtration more consistent across the whole scene mm-hmm. uh, maybe it should also be mentioned um, that uh, w- when using it uh, the, the common thing is to crank to crank that ring around as much as it can go and you know, keep hoping that you're going to get what you're looking for uh, I, d- I believe that's not true you have to go maybe a quarter turn either way perhaps you're right on the money that's fabulous advice. The, the filtration of polarized light occurs across 90 degrees only. Right. So you can turn the thing till the cattle grow wings and fly, but you're never going to get more than 90 degrees of adjustment. Right. You don't need to twist it forever. Yes. 
it's not going to get better or worse. It'll you, eventually come back to zero. but it, the, And that's exactly <laughs> what it does. It negates itself and you start again. So that's great advice for people. And the polarizer, as you said, in the screw-on type of polarizer, there's the ring that mounts to the front of the lens, mm -hmm. and then there's an outer ring that actually holds the filter that you rotate. Right. And how does one use it? You put it on, look through the viewfinder, and turn the ring until you get something you like. Yep. And if you don't see any change, you probably don't then have a point angle. source of light. Yes, and, and your angle, all your angle to the light is... Or you are, you are precisely aligned. There's a line that goes through the back of your head or the front of your head from the light and the subject. Everything's right. in the same line. Right. There'll be no effect there. So I think it's safe to say whether you choose a protective or UV filter, that's a personal choice. But everybody who photographs outside or photographs stuff that's reflective needs a polarizer. Sound fair? Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe a quick mention of uh, loss of light coming through? Yeah, actually, or, let's... Or later. No, let's talk about it now, because it's a good point. When we talk about polarizers in the context of digital cameras, we're talking about a new kind of polarizer. It's called a circular polarizer. Right. Now, for some of us, that's the only kind there's ever been. But then there are folks like moi who shot film right. 50 years ago. We had a different kind of polarizer called a linear polarizer. And linear polarizers would cut up to three stops of light. Circular polarizers will cut a maximum of about two stops of light. Okay. So you're right. It's safe to know that we're going to have two stops less light using a polarizing filter. Now, if we need to keep our shutter speeds and our apertures where they are without the filter, what do we do? Then your ISO has to change. Yeah, we'll put the ISO up a couple of stops. On your camera, on my cameras, on anything any camera. made in the last 10 years, that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get massive more noise going from ISO 100 to ISO 400 right. or ISO 200 to ISO 800. It's only two stops. Right. And if the photographer is really concerned about that, every post-processing program on the planet has got some kind of noise reduction. Mm -hmm. And it will definitely clean two stops of noise if it's even really there. Right. Because we know some folks think there's noise where there's no noise at all. Yep. Because they pixel peep. Prefer to podcast number. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if either of us had a clue which number it was, we uh, would tell you. Nothing, got nothing here. So you use the polarizer probably most often. I think so, yeah. Are there any other filters that you use? Uh, that would be a graduated neutral density. A graduated neutral density. Okay. So let's separate that out for our listeners. Okay. What is a neutral density filter from your perspective? Um, a neutral density is a filter that is designed to reduce the amount of light coming into the camera. That's it. 
doesn't get any more complex than that. Now, we can get neutral density filters in a variety of light reduction levels. Yeah. And the manufacturers don't make this easy to figure out. So an ND3 could be the same thing as a four-stop. Or it could be a one-stop ND, and then someone will call that a point three. The manufacturers work very, very hard to confuse the crap out of people. Rather than get caught up in if it's an ND2 or an ND4 or an ND8, or a point three, a point six, point nine, And sometimes the manufacturer will use the same chain... Same changes in nomenclature in their own filters. Yes, they do. But that's another story. And you can't take them out and drag them down a rough road by car, <laughs> although you want to. So uh, do we then, should we just refer to them as the amount of light that you're reducing? That's what I do because I'm... Always looking for as simple as possible, but no simpler. And that's something that everybody would understand. Yeah, yeah. everybody gets it. Oh, yeah, and this one cuts. If they can't figure it out, then they better go read their manual because somewhere in there tells you what those numbers mean in terms of light loss. Yeah, like I don't want to look at it and say, oh, it's an ND 1.2, it's an ND 3 or an ND 2 or, oh, no, this cuts four stops. Or that this cuts six stops. Or this cuts... 10 stops or 15 stops or whatever it cuts because I can figure that out. Right. And I can do the exposure shift necessary to get a good exposure. Right. Because if I reduce the amount of light that comes in, why am I doing that in the first place? Wow, that's another question. <laughs> so why do you do it? Uh, depending on what I'm trying to... Uh, predominantly the... The reason one would do it is so that you can use a wider aperture, to re reduce the amount of light so you can use a wider aperture and get a use slower shutter speed. Yeah, and really, guys, that's it. It's not so you can drive your ISO through the roof. Either no, we're trying to use a wide aperture where there's lots of light, but we want to do it that way because we want very shallow depth of field. Right. Chase the ephemeral bokeh. Or the portrait. Or a portrait. The second option is factual. The first option <laughs> is foo-foo dust. <laughs> but yeah, like if you're, t if you're shooting a portrait of somebody and it's a bright sunny day and you're shooting at ISO 100 and your shutter speed's around 1 125th of a second, that's going to require F-16. And that's going to bring the background into sharp focus, and that's going to be distracting. Yep. You know, if I spent the money on that 1.2 lens, I want to shoot it at 1.2. And I can't do that in bright sun. Right. And where I found this to be a real problem, actually, was, um, you, you know, we went to the London Air Show. Yes. And... Um, I had the polarizer mounted, uh, sorry, not a polarizer, I had an ND, uh, ND filter mounted on, I, I was using two cameras, and one had a, 
a shorter focal length than, than the other for when the planes were closer. And uh, since I was getting the prop planes in closer and I wanted to shoot at a, a slower shutter speed, it was such a bright day that I couldn't do that without getting all kinds of complaints from the camera that my uh, ISO was uh, too low, I think. Yeah. So... Uh, you ran out of that, range. That whole thing was shot. Every time I used that camera, I was shooting through an ND filter. Right, and, and that's a great example. You know, we've both seen the, the, the classes and, and read the... The, the materials by, say, Moose Peterson, who's a great aviation mm-hmm. photographer. And he says, if your shutter speed's over an 80th of a second, you're not going to get good prop blur. Right. And that prop-driven craft, be it a helicopter or a prop plane, is going to look like an Airfix model. Yep. Because the blades are going to be sharp. And that's not what you want. But getting your shutter speed down to a 60th or an 80th on a bright day, that could be a real challenge. Enter the neutral density filter. Right. It's a brilliant way to help you get where you need to be. Yep. But that's not the only use. Nope. Is there another one that you have? Um, well, we talked about deliberately shooting with a long exposure, getting a long shot, or a, a long exposure. Let's just leave it at that. A long exposure. Because you, you want to get to a point where you smooth out the ruffles in the picture, the moving ruffles in the picture. So you want to achieve motion blur. Yes. It's intentional. Yes. What's a great example where people want motion blur? I mean, you and and Douglas did a tour in the Hamilton area for this particular kind of subject. Right. Waterfalls, uh, streams, yeah, yeah, fast moving water. Yeah, when we think about waterfall pictures, we think of that creamy look to the water, or rapids in a creek, you know, where the water is flowing over the rocks. Mm-hmm. It just feels like there's more motion when we see motion blur in the water, right? But again, if it's a bright day, we're never going to get our shutter get speed down, down to four seconds or eight seconds we're going to need to reduce the amount of light. And this is where the neutral density filter is absolutely wonderful. You know, I can recall going up to shoot on the Severn River, and I wanted the water to be glassy. Right. Now, it wasn't a blowy day, but there was movement in the water. Right. And I didn't have the option for glassy water without a neutral density filter. Right. I use a 10-stop neutral density filter and a little app called ND Timer. Yes. So I can get the right time for the shutter speed. And, you know, 30 seconds later, I can look at the back of the camera and I've got exactly what I'm looking for. The trees are sharp. The barns are sharp. Everything looks lovely. But the water is like a sheet of glass with beautiful reflections Whereas if I had shot it at the actual expo- normal exposure without the ND filter, right. it would all have been sharp. But I wouldn't have had those gla- that glassy look to the water. So that's another good place for the neutral density. In summary, shoot with a wider aperture for less depth of field. 
Correct. By reducing the light or go for a much longer shutter speed to create motion blur. Both done with the neutral density filter. Right. Now you talked about the graduated neutral density filter. Mm -hmm. How does that differ from a regular neutral density? Um, Only half the filter is light reduced. Right. And in fact, there's a variety of different grads. They could split at the center. It could be what's called a hard grad, Mm -hmm. where the line is very clear. (laughs) It could be a soft grad where it's a fade. And you can get them at the one-third level, the two-thirds level, and the halfway is most common. And many of these filters are of a rectangular style. So they fit into a holder, and you can slide them up and down Mm -hmm. to decide where the gradation point occurs. Right. That's really useful. We see far fewer screw-on grad NDs than we did back in the old days because we don't want the horizon dead center. Right. We want to control where that gradation occurs. Now, why would you use one? Uh, Because the illumination of, uh, let's say, the sky is frequently much brighter than anything that's below the horizon level. Right, exactly. You may not want to have to go into post and turn down your sky or lift up your foreground to try to make it look okay. Right. I mean, you can do it. But if you can get it right in camera and see yeah. it in the camera, wow, that's just awesome. And that it's a great tool. So to summarize, when we talk about these useful filters, that protective or UV might be something you want to have. That polarizer, yeah, everybody should have a polarizer. Regular neutral density, I think it's a great filter ha- to have. The caveat I put here is, don't buy a neutral density that's less than six stops. Right. Because a one-stop or a two-stop or a three-stop, it's just not enough. And you end up stacking them, and that negatively impacts the quality of your image. Right. So in my case, that, that is exactly what happened. Um, not knowing, I was advised to, well, here's, here's a two-stop and here's a three-stop. I said, oh, yeah, this is great. And when I stacked them, I I can't say I saw a difference in the quality of the image, but it certainly didn't increase my exposure time by any great amount. It had some some beneficial effects on a really bright day, but not the effect I was maybe looking for later on when I got uh, more knowledgeable. And I think that's very fair. If we can avoid stacking, we should avoid stacking. And if we're actually trying to slow the shutter speed down a lot or open the lens aperture up a lot, you know, start at five or six stops. Mm -hmm. Then for your next one, go 10. Right. And if you must go further than that, then you go 15. But don't go in one stop or two stop or three stop increments. And remember, you've already got a two stop ND in your polarizer. Yes, sir. So there's no need to buy a two-stop ND if you've got a polarizer. Yep. They're doing the same thing, and the polarizer is actually potentially adding some more value. Yes. Now, you can, if you wish, stack neutral densities and a polarizer together. Yep. 
And it becomes an additive effect because they cut light in different ways. Mm -hmm. The only caveat I would suggest, put the polarizer right in the front. Yep. Doesn't mean it won't work the other way. You just might find it easier to turn the ring. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So now, if those are the good and useful filters, let's talk about some of the ones whose usefulness has faded or never was. And one of the never was is, and I'm making a generalization here, is the variable neutral density. Because a variable neutral density is not actually a neutral density at all. It's two polarizers stacked together. And they'll typically offer you between two and about six stops of lens cut, never more, or sorry, light cut. But I've noticed looking at camera stores that a high quality polarizer seems to cost as much as twice as much as one of these variable NDs which is two polarizers. So what's it telling me about the quality of those polarizers? Exactly what you think. Yeah, exactly the word you're thinking of. And what you're going to find, and I promise you will find, is that with most variables, you're going to start to see a color shift. Things are going to start to go green. Now that doesn't mean that you can't fix that in post. But why should you create that problem for yourself if you don't have to? Right. Now, if you absolutely must have a variable ND, you can get a very, very good one from the German company Heliopan. I'm not sure why you'd want to spend $500 on one variable ND that will only do six stops, where for the same amount of money, I could get three really high-quality fixed NDs, and maybe a grad. Same money, much more usable. Something to think about. So if someone were to say to me, hey, I got an opportunity to get this variable ND, I'm going to suggest that they go to lunch instead. (laughs) Because in general, with great respect, they're crap. Now, Gordon, we talked about the use of the graduated ND as being a great way to deal with that bright sky, darker foreground type of scenario. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that you use the Koken filter system mm-hmm. and it's been around a very long time and it's a pretty good one. They really made their bones with the, these things called color grad NDs or the gradation did cut some light, but it also imparted a color cast. So it might be clear going to orange or clear going to dark blue. Right. Here's the problem. That color cast gets applied to everything. Right. And while it might be interesting to look at, you get what it has. If you want to do color gradation, you're far better off to do that in your post-processing software Mm -hmm. because then you can control 
the density of the grad, right? You can change where the transition starts to occur. You can change how dense it gets by manipulating the sliders. Right. So I'm going to suggest that in general, before you spend money on color grad NDs, spend the money on a good quality, just graduated ND. And if you want to do color shift, do that in post. You'll save money. Especially, I think, for looking at the uh, new versions of Lightroom and Photoshop that have come out. They've got all kinds of uh, color correction. Absolutely. You could could turn it into Christmas if you wanted. Yeah, you can. You really can. You know, I mean, I, I, I took a photograph up by the tom taylor trail i let the grasses go blurry and then i took it all to another planet <laughs> i made the grasses purple and the sky green using just those tools right you know i might have been able to use two grads to do that but i never would have gotten the same level of flexibility right so we're going to mark color grad nds off our list right now The next type of filter I'm going to tell you you can avoid is something that was super common back in the days of film. It was called the skylight filter, the 1A. And it was basically a pink warming filter because some films tended to render more green or blue. Right. You've got automatic white balance or manual white balance in your digital camera. Absolutely no use for this whatsoever. If you've got some old ones from the days of film, wouldn't the camera correct for that, though? The camera's going to try to correct for it. But because it's put this cast over everything, it may not get it as right as you <laughs> might like. Throw them away. Speaking of throwing away, Uh-oh. let's talk about close-up filters. Okay. So what is a close-up filter? Well, I've never used one. Uh, I know somebody who has them. Uh, but my understanding is that... Uh, They screw onto the front of your lens and they function as a magnifier or something that allows you to get closer to your image. Yeah, they allow you to get closer to the subject. So they are the fool's idea of macro. Right. Because they are, in fact, just magnifying glasses. Right. Um, And optically, they're almost as good as the magnifying glass from the dollar store. (laughs) But you'll pay a lot more for them. And the level of image degradation is going to be horrible. Right. Now, the fact that Canon makes two close-up filters and charge over $250 each does not make them good. It means they fished you in for $250 per shot for junk. Don't go there. Yeah, there's a cheaper alternative, which I think you're going to get to somewhere. Well, there are there are alternatives. Right. Rather than buy two of those, buy a macro lens. Right. Well, mine, that's that's about how much my little macro lens cost actually. Yeah, about two of them. Yeah, you can you can get a Canon 100, not the L, but the perfectly good 100 2.8 macro for about the same price as those two Canon close-up right. filters. And there is going to be 
worlds of difference in the quality. Now, Gordon, you mentioned earlier that uh, your fil- your lens took a 72 mil filter. Mm-hmm. Do you have any lenses that are smaller in filter diameter? Uh, yes. So did you buy different filters for all those lenses? No. And the reason is because I actually came to the filters I'm using now from a full-frame camera. Okay. So the filters that I started out buying and the holder that I have is a, it's a 77. Okay. And here I was advised well in that I could buy rings to take it from 77 to 72 or 62, which one of my lenses were. And by screwing those on, you can adapt the larger holder and filter to a smaller smaller diameter camera uh, lens. Yeah. Thank you for telling people how to do it smart. They're called step rings. Step rings. You can, and by the way. And maybe you could elucidate why they're called step up and step down because that makes absolutely no sense to me. So here's the fact about step up and step down. The tombs are the terms the tombs the terms are used interchangeably which is crazy step up means i'm going to go from a 49 millimeter say lens mount to use a 72 millimeter filter okay. big filter smaller diameter lens okay that's a step up a step down says i've got a 77 millimeter filter ring but i've only got a 72 millimeter filter right i'm stepping it down now go to a different store and they'll give them the opposite names (laughs) it's not very helpful the beautiful thing about these is they're cheap yes yeah like you're talking under 10 bucks there's no optical component you know, if you want to spend the extra dollar for brass versus aluminum, in the theory that brass will stick less than aluminum will, go ahead. But I got another idea. Don't reef your filters on like you're trying to fit pipe. You don't have to screw them on so tight that That's they right. never come they, off. They're just going to sit there. Yeah, it's just sitting there. It's not flying away at the drop of a hat. Step rings will save you money, for sure. Now, you said you're using some of those Koken filters, and they're rectangular, right? Yes. And you've also got filters that are round. I that have screw on. one that's around. That's the polarizer. That's your polarizer. Does the shape matter? Uh, not to the filtration process, the, and the attachment is a true round anyway. Right. So don't get hooked up on shape, guys. However, if you're going to use graduated neutral densities... You're going to want to use the rectangular yeah, one so you can move where the grad- graduation takes place. Right. You're not getting a, a lesser quality filter by going rectangular. Right. It's going to be just fine. Now, one thing that I do want to encourage people to think about is what happens when I use a filter on a wide-angle lens. Oh. So a wide-angle lens sees more of the scene. And if you've had a wide-angle lens that's got a lens hood, 
that they're typically what we call the petal design, like flower petals. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they are very wide. Yep. If I use a thick ring filter on my wide angle lens, I might start cutting off the corners. Okay. This is called vignetting. Yep. Fortunately, there's a solution to that. The first solution is thin ring filters. Okay. They're designed specifically for wide angle lenses. Then again, you may also have a wide-angle lens that's got a big bulbous front element that you can't screw a filter to. So you're going to get a mount system, and it's going to use a much bigger filter in a frame. Right. So, for example, I have an 11 to 24 millimeter lens. It's a beautiful lens. But the front end looks like a beach ball. There's no way to screw anything to that. Right. So instead, I have a frame that mounts to the barrel, and it holds a six inch square big filter out front that doesn't vignette. Right. So just think about that when it comes to wide angle lenses that your filter is either the ring's not too thick or that you can move to something that's quite a bit larger to ensure you don't get vignetting when you use it on the front element. Right. I take the other route. I don't use the lens when I have to, I don't use a filter when I'm using a wide angle lens. I right. You, maybe you don't an want alteration. to change change things. I use it. I use the polarizer uh, in a frame, and I'll use the neutral, the big neutral density in a frame with the ultra wide. When I want to smooth out water right. or something in a landscape, sure. Um, but just think about that vignetting. You're going to see it. You'll see it in your optical viewfinder. You'll see it in your electronic viewfinder. If you see it, you cannot make it go away. In post. So just think accordingly. So from what you said, you've got the step up and you've got the step down and you've got rings. And so if I am to interpret what you said in plain English for everybody, buy the filter that's going to fit the biggest lens diameter that you've got. And bring, then buy, whether it's a step up or step down or whatever they happen to be calling it on Thursday, uh, get the rings that will match whatever lens you've got. Absolutely correct. But don't go from a small filter to a larger ring. No. Because that's a recipe for disaster. Well, you're going to get vignetting. So, for example, in screw-on filters, the largest screw-on filter I have for my DSLRs, for all of my lenses that will take a screw-on, is 82 mil. Right. So I bought my screw-on filters as 82s, and because I think Cameron manufacturers are sadists, from one company, I've got five different filter diameters from Canon. Right. In my assortment of lenses, and yes, I have too many, I admit it, <laughs> I, couldn't, I would need five different filter sizes. That's insane. Right. Instead, I use my 82 millimeter B plus W Caseman polarizer, which costs a lot of money, but it's beautiful on every lens just with step up or step, yeah, step up rings. They step up to the 82. Right. Regardless of the lens that I'm using. Now, we've gone a little longer than we usually do, and I don't want to take too much time, but I do want to talk a little bit about brands. It's your money, guys. Spend it as you wish. However, 
if you're going to spend money on filters, my guidance to you, and I suspect Gordon's guidance is, would be the same, go with good quality, high quality, well-known brands of filters. If you've never heard of the company, maybe you don't want to be first <laughs> trying them out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you the brands that I own that I have used. I think extensively would be an exaggeration, but I've used them a lot mm -hmm. that I have come to determine are excellent quality filters. And I'm going to tell you straight up front, they're not cheap, but I'll also tell you straight up front. I've had some of them for 15 years. Because a good filter lasts. An 82 mil mount is an 82 mil mount, whether it's this camera or the prior camera or the next new camera that I don't have yet. So I would encourage folks who are looking for good quality filters, uh, and you can find them through the B&H link on the website, if you are so inclined, are B, B plus W. That's out of Germany. Awesome glass. Heliopan, they're out of Germany. Awesome glass. Breakthrough filters, I learned about from Moose Peterson. He started buying breakthrough filters okay. um, because his filters kept getting lost or stolen. Um, they cost less, and Moose swears by them in terms of the optical quality, so I bought one just as a test, uh, and the quality is wonderful. Okay. And the breakthroughs are a screw-on type filter. Okay. Or at least the ones I have. Haida uh, is a company that makes uh, both glass and polycarbonate square and rectangular filters for use in filter holders. Right. Uh, very, very high quality, very fair prices, and doesn't take a lot to get. Like, you don't have to wait forever. Better known in this space are Lee filters. I used Lee for years, but I found when I started going to high-density NDs that I was starting to get a color cast. Okay. Not so much in, in my little stopper, five stops, but the big stopper at 10 stops, yeah, I was starting to see a greenish look. Okay. Um, I've never owned a super stopper, which is 15 stops. I went Ida for that. Right. And I'm very happy with the Haida stuff. There's a filter line out of Great Britain called Format High Tech. And their fire core, fire something line is absolutely stunning. Mm. Okay. Glass or poly. And their grad NDs, they have a wider choice of grad NDs than anyone I've ever seen. One third, two third. 50-50, hard cut, soft cut. Okay. Really, really great stuff. Um, they're awesome. Um, they fit my Lee holders or uh, my Koken holders because I still have some Koken stuff right. uh, from the film days. I honestly, I'm not using it very much now because a lot of them are those filters that you don't use them with digital. Right. Right. Um, the other line that I still recommend is the American line called Tiffin. Now, Tiffin filters are probably the most inexpensive of all of these guys. 
but they're the gold standard in cinema. Okay. Four by, they're four by five big filters. They're square filters. Um, Tiffin also, if you are looking for softening filters, mm-hmm. you know, like a black mesh or a gold mesh or a silver mesh for portraiture, okay. Tiffin has more choice than anybody. Again, it comes from their cinematic background, right? right? We've all seen it. The shot head-on of the actor, he's all craggy and... And then the switch shot of the actress, and she looks like milk <laughs> because they're using filters. Right. And that's a, that's, a, that's a DP and director decision. But Tiffin's got the widest range available. And in fact, they have some really good software that's sadly very, very expensive that allows you to apply those filters to your digital work. Um, I don't use, I don't own it anymore. My, I haven't renewed my license because, and I'm not doing that kind of work. Right. But if I were, I would definitely look at that or order their, order their filters. Tiffins, any of the lines that I talk to, um, you're going to be able to get through BNH or your better quality photo store, uh, with the exception of breakthrough, you buy those direct. Okay. So would you have advice for somebody just starting out maybe in terms of outlay versus quality? If I were, if the person was living where you could get breakthrough filters relatively easily, I'd say start with them. Okay. They're, they are of superb quality at still a median price. Okay. And if you needed filters that would go in a holder, like those um, variable NDs and that sort of thing, right. look to Haida first. Okay. Because they've got a very good selection. And if you need something special, well, then you're going to go to format uh, high tech to their, to their fire series. Okay. Um, and all of these, by the way, they're multi-coated, they're optical glass or optical polycarbonate. They're super durable, scratch resistant, fingerprint resistant, you can use the same cleaning tools that you use on your lenses on these guys. Do get a filter case to hold them in for your travel. Uh, don't let them bounce around loose. Uh, we both know somebody who does that. Uh, yep. But that's a personal choice. Again, it's your money, your decision. Anything you want to add as we close, Gord? No, I think uh, I've covered pretty much everything here. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Gordon. I really appreciate you I'm being here to help with this and uh, to keep me in line. As I, it's, it, you know, one, one is born for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Putting a lasso on this guy is, is not Gordon's <laughs> life reason, although I'm sure it feels that way for him. Thanks very much, buddy. And folks, thanks very much for listening. I've been Ross. And I'm Gordon. And we'll talk to you again real soon.